episode of the tome show is brought to you by noble knight where out of print is available again and listeners like you thanks for using the tomes amazon and DD classics affiliate links hey this is mike merles lead developer of fourth edition and you're listening to the tome welcome to the tome a DD news reviews and interview show and i'm your tome host jeff griner and I'm your co-host, Tracy Hurley, and in this episode, number 262, we're going to check in on the health of this great game of ours, Dungeons & Dragons, in an interview with Mike Morales about the state of the game. Do you ever think that when I do my intro voice, people think that that's the way I'm going to talk the whole way, and then we get to the interview and they're disappointed? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, then I'll stop. <laughs> All right, so before we dive into the interview with Mike, we first have to, or no, we first get to bring you to our Noble Knight ad. Uh, They've supported us for many years now, and we've built up a ton of cool ads. From the current James Intercasso era to the pre-Intercasso era, who knows what our editor Sam will put in this episode. Make sure you hang out and find find out what he plays. My pick for this episode is the D&D starter set for 5th edition, If you weren't sure about the game before this interview, you might be interested in it now. And you know, a great way to get into the new edition and take it for a test drive is get the starter set. Check it out at Noble Knight, and don't forget to tell them that the Tome Show sent you. Support for the Tome Show comes from Noble Knight. From Noble Knight. Noble Knight? Knight. Knight? Thousands of tabletop gamers use a Noble Knight to sell new and out-of-print games and products at a discounted price. Noble Knight will also buy back the game products you aren't using anymore. NobleKnight.com, the brick-and-mortar online store where out-of-print is available again. Tell them the Tome Show sent you. I use Noble Knight. You do? I love it. It's trying to sound creepy, though. And now on to the interview with Mike Merles. We are here now with Mike Merles, lead designer for the D&D brand. If there's a question about D&D, there's a better than average chance that Mike has an answer. And I'm told it might be accurate. <laughs> and Mike, we've talked to you before, uh, but just in case uh, people don't remember, or this is their first time listening, uh, who are you? So uh, I am, the, my title is Senior Manager for D&D. But that's not very descriptive. Uh, I'm basically in charge of everything on the creative end of D&D. So stories, worlds, characters, products... All the stuff that we directly create here at Wizards, I, I'm in charge of, and then in charge of the overall story and the, the lore of the world. Of hmm. And 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 mechanics are sort of rolled in there for the game as well. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So if, if it's if it's the D and D tabletop game, it goes through you. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, then you are the person to talk to because. Uh, we wanted to get a sort of general feel as to, to how D&D is doing, right? We, we're a few years into, uh, 
into the new edition and what have you. So uh, what is the state of Dungeons & Dragons in this political season? <laughs> give, your, give your state of the game address. So right now, D&D, the role-playing game, and D&D as a whole, is very healthy. So by every way that we measure the game's health, uh, we are ahead of ex- expectations or ahead of targets that we set. Uh, we have more people playing. We have, and this is very important for the company, we have more people buying. And I think that even just, you know, these things about like the, the overall zeitgeist of D&D, uh, I think we're in a very good place. You know, we really transition things, obviously releasing 5th edition in the summer of 2014. You're changing the game's rules. That's you know, it's a good you know it's a it's a big moment in the game's history, but I think beyond that, you know, we went with this strategy of really cutting back on the number of products that we release, and the theory behind it was twofold. Uh, one, we could just see from the information we were getting from the playtest that people really felt in the past they couldn't keep up with the game. There was just too much stuff coming out. And then on the other hand, when we look at how people play games these days, we really felt that D&D needed to feel a lot more like other games people might be playing, uh, even games they play pretty intensely, where expansions, you know, if you play an MMO or you play like a MOBA or even just play a board game, you don't really see an expansion more than, say, maybe once a quarter. And even then, the expansions are typically just more content for you to play rather than, you know, massive, you know, new uh, selections of options for your character or, you know, a lot a lot of new rules for, you know, uh, a game. And so we kind of felt like part of it was being contemporary, but part of it was also just fitting in with how people, you know, play games and what they wanted from D&D. And it's kind of a chicken and egg question of, like, do people feel that way because they think, oh, in the past, here's how D&D worked and I want it to change? Or were we seeing that people, you know, the other games they play the rate of new content, they kind of wanted D&D to match that. But in, in either case, whatever's driving it, I think we really are seeing people embrace this, and I think we're seeing more people engaged with the storylines we're rolling out, with the adventures. When we do do something with the more mechanical bed to it, like the Sword Coast Adventures Guide, I think we see more people picking it up. And I think that on a meta level, when you think of the discussions around the game, I think there's just a lot more common ground people have in terms of what they do with D&D and what the interesting talking point is. Because there's just a lot less noise around D&D. And it's pretty, you know, if you think, like, what's the big thing in D&D this month? Well, it's, you know, most people who are following things would say, oh, it's Curse of Strahd. We're going to Ravenloft. And adding Ravenloft to the DMs Guild and Gothic Horror as this kind of mode we're in for the next, you know, as the next story, I think it gives people a much more of a shared common understanding that you might see in games, say, like a League of Legends or a World of Warcraft, you know, or if you're, you know, if you're playing a board game, you know, like what's the the next expansion for something like, oh, a card game like Magic, or even if you're, you know, if you're a big Settlers fan, like, you know, what's the next expansion that, that might be released for that game? So I think that also really helps bring the community together. It gives people a, a common shared experience that helps, you know, people who are playing D&D, if they meet the first time, they have a, a, a more clear starting point. So I think all that's combining to really, really help bring us together in terms of, you know, number of people playing, the growth of the game, bringing in younger players. That seems to be a really big driver for us. 
Very good. So it sounds like you're you're pretty positive on how how things have gone uh, with the addition and with the the game in general. Uh, not on a design question, but as a as sort of a brand question. I know you're not the brand guy, right? But um, what would you, if you could, go back in time and and um, do something differently with D and D? What would you do differently? You know, I, I think the it's a small thing to start with because there's a few things I would have done differently. But the um, one thing I, I think I definitely would have done was for Adventures League, we allow people to use like feats and multiclassing. I don't think I would have allowed that as a starting point because I think there is, you know, especially for new players whose first experience might be an Adventures League table, the game, we're, we're kind of adding a little more complexity there than I think we needed. And I think the other thing, and it's kind of more of a detailed thing, but just in how we designed a couple of the classes, I'm thinking really of like the fighter, which is such a common class. And so many people, you know, when they start playing the game, they start with a fighter just because it's it's a very relatable archetype. You know, I, I am the character who fights with weapons, you know, and I wear heavy armor. Um, I think that we focused a bit too much on mechanics for that one and missed out a bit on, you know, having subclasses for the fighter that were more evocative, you know, like, like an archer or a knight, you know, or a samurai, you know, things like that, where someone who hadn't played DD before and you're asked them, hey, well, I want you to choose now what kind of fighter do you want to play, the words and the concepts they're, they're sifting through are much more recognizable. You know, they could think back to movies or video games they've played and think, oh, I want to make a character like this character I may have played or this character that I like. And the concept is much clearer. Rather than having to think in more mechanical terms, do you want to use maneuvers or do you want to have a simpler character? You know, the other classes really don't fall into that kind of decision. They're framed much more in terms of who your character is rather than the character's mechanics. And um, I know earlier you were talking about kind of like having stability to the game and uh, how, and stuff. One of the things we have seen is some errata come out. Mm-hmm. And we're wondering uh, what's, what's the purpose of it in fifth edition and how much should we expect going forward yeah the uh with the rata when you look at how we've done things in the past and look at how we're doing it now one of the things we're trying to do is balance that idea of continuity versus cleaning up spots in the game that are confusing and i think that that concept you know cleaning up confusion that is really our 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 guiding point for rata we're not trying to develop the game on the fly where, hey, this class is too powerful, well, can we fix that? I think a lot of those big questions were cleaned up in the playtest. And so what, we're, what we typically look to do in errata is find something that's either genuinely doesn't function, like this rule, you know, it's missing a number, uh, and, and fix that. So it's, you know, that, that's just a straight-up error. You know, uh, for instance, imagine if you had a monster and we just didn't list its hit points and hit dice. So you just, you just can't use it. So there are cases, and luckily we don't have too many cases like that, but things like that we would just publish a fix for. And in other cases, uh, like we had errata for armor class, which really came down to not changing how armor class worked, but rewriting the existing rules in a way that made it clearer how things interoperate. And I think armor class is a good example. If you read the player's handbook, uh, the definition of armor class, I think it maybe shows up in combat. It's reasonably straightforward, but when you think of that defini- definition 
alongside the exceptions that exist to it. So, you know, if you're playing a barbarian, you have an ability where your armor class is calculated differently. Same for a monk and, and the dragon sorcerer uh, and some magic items. Then when you start putting those pieces next to each other, it starts to get confusing. So I think in some cases, errata is a chance for us. Now that the game has been out, people have been playing, we can kind of see all those disparate pieces come together and really people are putting them side by side in, in ways that may not have been as apparent during the playtest. Then we can say, hey, you know what? We Really, we should have written armor class this way. So it's a way where we can really clean up that confusion. And I, I think we want to avoid, whenever possible, actually changing rules and how they work, simply because you know we have so many people playing the game now, and we really haven't come across like really fundamental like errors in the game. And again, I think a lot of that is because we had such a long open playtest process that most of the, that kind of error we've already caught. Um, so yeah, I think that that we're really seeing it more as Parada exists for the community to make things easier rather than, you know, there's other ways we, we could approach it. Like, we don't want to see it as we're just strictly going through and finding every error in the book and correcting it. There are things in the book that might be wrong, like, but it's almost like when you think, uh, if you ever, you know, there's this concept, like, you know, if you're acting free to play, if you get a line wrong, you know, the audience doesn't know that. Unless someone's memorized the script, they don't really know that maybe you said the wrong word or interposed two words. And, but at the end of the day, if the line's well delivered and the rest of the play is working, you know, you don't worry about that, right? Like, you're not going to stop the play and, hey, let's rewind so I can re-say my line. You know, the, uh, so I, I think that's kind of our approach where it might be, we might look at it and think, hey, this rule is wrong, but people are playing the game and it's working fine. So we don't really necessarily want to change it. So if I understand the, the game as it, as it, as it is in the player's handbook that I bought, uh, and a lot of the errata is just fixing typos and clarity um, changes, I can just not worry about the errata and keep playing the game. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, the interesting thing, and I think the lesson we learned from the playtest, was for a lot of people, they might get rules wrong, but they're still enjoying the game. And we kind of, we don't want to, like, stop those people from playing to say, hey, you need to change what you're doing. Because as long as people are enjoying themselves... And you know, by it's by its nature, you know, you might say this, you know, this is overpowered in your game, or this class isn't working out right. But if everyone's enjoying themselves, that's more important than our trying to make sure everyone's playing uh, exactly the same way. Now, I think that's another good way to slice the errata question: is are there things where, because of the lack of clarity, or because of maybe you know, we made a mistake in how we presented the rule, or whatever, if it's actually disruptive, and we see that on a large scale? Then that's a good example of something that we, that we would look at errata. But but like I said, I think we we because we've had such you know great play, response to the playtest. I think we 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 eliminated most of those potential errors before the game uh, went to press. Does the slow release of product also help with that that process since you're not pushing things out as quickly? Yes, one hundred percent. Because typically, what then happens is when we have people you know playing the game and having questions, they're asking questions about the player's handbook or the Sword Coast Adventures guide. Because mm-hmm. those are really the, the two main pieces, you know, that add new options. There's also the free elemental um, player's companion. Um, so, yeah, w- what's nice, and I was just talking about this a lot, you know, I was, I was running a game a couple weeks ago. Someone used a spell, uh, Ice Knife, and I could immediately knew, without really having to think about it, oh, that's a spell from the elemental player's companion. Because I just knew, well, if it's not, that doesn't sound like a player's handbook spell. I don't remember the player's handbook. It must be from this source. Because I know that's the only other significant source of spells we had mm-hmm. created. And I think, I think people running the game for Dungeon Masters, 
I think they generally really like that because it makes it feel like you have a good handle on the game. You kind of know what to expect from the players without knowing the details of their characters. Yeah. Now, on that strategy of the, the slow release of product, you talked a little bit about the, the reasoning behind that, right? Uh, a slower release so people can keep up and, and play what, what comes out and actually have time to, to play with it and not have to you know, worry about what's coming out next month. Um, at the same time, there's been quite a clamor of people who want more options uh, for their characters or more monsters or whatever. And um, the storyline, the slow once or twice a year storyline approach does not fulfill that need. You know, there's not a lot of more options that come out with those products. Um, what do you say to those people who are clamoring for more options? We definitely know people will want more variety in the characters they're playing. And the way we want to address that, well, first, there's the DM skill. So if you just want more content, you know, and uh, a lot of designers, creators for releasing stuff in the DM skill, they're opting to go for very low price points, you know, pay what you want, things like that. There's always that outlet. You know, if you, if you just want to look through stuff and find something that's interesting for your campaign, that, you know, we really saw, you know, it's just, it's very Dungeons and Dragons, right? People like to create stuff as part of their campaigns. So we, we wanted to give people an easy outlet. Um, and there's also, you know, now that we have the open gaming license, we released the core engine under that, you'll probably start seeing people, you know, uh, start publishing uh, uh, more content for characters. But I think from the end, from, from the Woods of the Coast end of things, if we were going to do a new, new character options, I think you would see us, my ideal would be to follow in the footsteps of how we dress the core works. Do something that has a, a significant playtest component to it. Um, really dig into what people are missing from the games, like what kind of characters are they unable to play, um, and really try to, you know, as much as possible, make sure that we're addressing a genuine need. You know, there's always like a kind of deck building aspect to, to building characters, right? You just, you know, what's theoretical? What is theoretically possible? And that's fun, but I think for the game, we're telling people, hey, we're adding something officially to Dungeons and Dragons. It's gonna be something that's really meeting a genuine need. And we always want to balance that against people running the game, dungeon masters. You know, and, and you know, is it a headache for them now to to track all this extra stuff? Because at the end of the day, if you don't have a dungeon master who's having fun, you don't have a campaign. Uh, and I think that's been a big point of emphasis for us when we think about the game. Is we want dungeon masters to really enjoy what they're doing, either creating uh, or just managing their games. So I think if we were to do new player options. Uh, which is something we talked about. You know, it's something we you know we we totally know that that's you mm -hmm. know something people you know there is a segment of people, segment of players who want that, very thoroughly play tested, really driven by you know archetypes that we missed or, or areas in the game we want to fill in, and uh, I think it's something we would do infrequently. You know, it, it would be rather than being an annual thing, it'd be more like an every several years kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Make it that big event, you know, where. It is something, hey, we're, we're adding some new, maybe even adding a new character class to the game. Uh, and it, it, it's significant. You know, we are, we would feel comfortable saying to people, hey, this is just as legitimate a resource to use as your player's handbook. Uh, and, you know, it takes a lot of work on our end, but I think when we do it, we'd want to commit significant resources, significant time and energy to make sure that, that, that we, we get it right. Yeah, I mean, I don't think, I think it's careful balance, right? On one hand, um, you don't want to to produce the the glut and the creep that that has happened in some previous editions, um, which sounds like your strategy. On the other hand, um, you know, 
we want to fix the ranger or what happened to psionics and I, I want these things. Right. So that's all sort of there uh, living in the same world and trying to, trying to find a, a solution. Right. Yeah. And it partners you know, with the unearthed arcana articles, which were, in, which were monthly for the first uh, year plus. And now we're kind of going bi-monthly, you know, in some ways because, uh, well, we want to show off cool stuff in the DMs Guild. But the other half of it too is, you know, there's only so many types of characters that, most people who play D&D want to play. Um, we don't want to start creating new options for the sake of creating new options. Because I think when you get to that point, that's when dungeon masters have trouble tracking it all. Uh, there's also just the simple fact, you know, you bring in a new player, uh, or just a players in general, you don't want to overwhelm people with options. Mm-hmm. You know, that's like there's so much research done on this, you know, how many choice points can you give people, how hard is it people to navigate through them. You know, we always want to make sure the game is friendly to new players because Dungeons and Dragons really is the starting point for a lot of people playing role playing games, and we also don't want to splinter that conversation. You know, what's the culture of the game where people playing the game are having wildly different experiences, perspectives on the game, just based on which expansions? Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that when people are having conversations, they're rooted in words that if you even did if you didn't even know the game. It, as much as possible would still make sense. You know, it kind of goes back to the idea of the fighter, right? Where the fighter choices are like archer or, you know, knight or scout, you know, things where even if I don't play D&D, I have a sense of who those characters are. You know, so even if you add a, a, a meaty player expansion, the stuff it's adding to the table still is really dealing in archetypes that are universal to fantasy, you know, uh, or they're really embedded in something recognizable. Uh, you know, we're not just going so far afield, you know. I think 5th edition is a little bit interesting to us, you know, from, from a design perspective, in that we're comfortable with saying, you know, at some point, but, you know, maybe we do an expansion or two. We might be done with some classes, simply because we've covered the, the relevant archetypes. You know, there's no need to try to force the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if, because you've uh, touched on it now, the DMs Guild and the Open Gaming License, if you just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the different needs that those two uh, hit, and then also, why did it take so long to have them come out? <laughs> yeah, no, those are the. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll run with the the length thing, you know, the duration. So a lot of it was just getting the practical planning of the DMs Guild in place. Uh, we wanted to launch with both um, because we felt it kind of goes back to this idea of the conversation. We didn't want to like, hey, do like say release the OGL first. And then it kept, hey, wait a second, you know, remember that thing we talked about? Well, here's another part of it. So we want to make sure they were both ready. Uh, there was a practical consideration that we wanted to give people time with the game. You know, I, I was active actually as a designer back in 2000 when D&D was first released under the Open Gaming License. And uh, I, I can tell you firsthand, people were, I was writing stuff without fully understanding the system. You know, all I had was a player's handbook. I'd had it for less than a week, and I'm writing an adventure, right, for, for publication. So we wanted to give people at least a year with the game uh, to get that kind of like best practices. People kind of understand, here's, you know, don't mess with concentration on spells. You know, it's a really important tool for balance. Um, Running games, understanding here's how monsters work. Here's how monsters kind of transform. Like as you go up that challenge rating ladder, you know, monster, a CR, you know, eight monster does a lot more damage than a CR five. Kind of seeing that scaling. Um, So people had some experience. They weren't going in cold. And then uh, the other end was uh, working with our partners at uh, One Bookshelf. They operate uh, a 
uh, drivethroughrpg.com, uh, rpgnow.com. Uh, they had they were also licensees for dndclassics.com. So working with them, uh, they are essentially uh, they run the DMs Guild as a license manager. You know, like we kind of had the initial idea, but they were the ones who took it, ran with it, and implemented it. So one of the things we typically do now. Uh, when we look at a project is we always try to try to take our time. You know, we want to make sure things are working and the quality's there before we release things. So it also, you know, we had looked at, hey, we can do an early release, but we don't want to commit to something and risk, you know, the site's not functional. We wanted to make sure there was some nice uh, a, a selection of content on the site to start with. So when people showed up, it wasn't just an empty website. We also wanted to make sure uh, we had resources like art, um, uh, document templates to use. Uh, and this now kind of segues into, into the first half of your question. Uh, really for the DMs Guild, we wanted any dungeon master out there who has run a campaign and created whether it's a monster, or a short adventure, a new character option for their campaign, that they had, it was as easy as possible for them to take that idea from a few notes in their campaign notebook or whatever software they're using, and then use the tools and, and what we provide in the DMs Guild to make it as easy as possible to turn that around into a PDF that's up, that's up on the site. Um, so really, you know, and, and then, so that's the big audience of the DMs Guild, is dungeon masters who might not otherwise have thought of themselves as game designers, giving the tools to make them think, hey, maybe this is something I can do. You know, I, I can I can add that, that, that body of Dungeons and Dragons lore. And then also kind of, from our point of view, gives us this bit of a walled garden where we can do things like let people work with Forgotten Realms, uh, work with Ravenloft, where we don't have to give you these, this myriad, you know, well, here's what you can and can't use in the realms because there's certain things we're comfortable making open and certain things we want to keep. But the way the DMs build is structured is we can just say, you can create stuff for the Forgotten Realms, and it's that's it, right? If it's a Forgotten Realms element, you can work with it. And now, obviously, you know, Ravenloft, too, and, and any future settings we have. Is so that the we, plan, future settings as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. You know, with Ravenloft coming out, we are definitely looking at you know, what rate do we want to add new settings? What are good points where it makes sense? Or either there's something to commemorate? Or, you know, we don't want to do everything at once because then that kind of goes back to this, you know, the idea that you kind of overwhelm people. Sure. So it gives each setting its chance to have its time in the sun to get people to start creating, kind of focus on that. And, but the plan is to put all, all upcoming settings will be available on Deems Guild as well then? Yeah, I think eventually you will see. I, 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 I don't know if there's any setting we wouldn't put up there unless there was like a legal issue, right? Like okay. maybe someone has some rights to it, you know? But yeah, I mean, that would definitely be the plan. It's going to take time. You know, right. we would say we want to give each setting its chance to shine. But yeah, I mean, for us, it's a great outlet. Uh, and it's a great way for people, you know, those sort of fan communities to give them a platform they can use and to expose the setting to new fans and to kind of, you know, if you have notes you worked up in a campaign, you want to share them with the world. I mean, that's really the stage we've been. And that kind of goes back to uh, Tracy. The first, uh, the, the first part of your question, we really see the DMs Guild as enabling people who otherwise might not create or otherwise might not have. You know, if you work with, say, your Forgotten Realms campaign, you made up a new city or a new god, uh, or you've expanded on existing lore, you know, it gives you a chance to share that, you know, and get that out there. So we really see it as, you know, it's for for new designers, or designers who are looking if you're really big fans of a setting. You get to work with it without, you know, Wizards of the Coast having to work, cut the license, right, and publishing deals. The open gaming license and the, the system reference document released under it, that, I see that as being much more aimed at, you know, uh, pub, current publishers or people who think, hey, I want to get in the publishing game. 
make a bit more of investment, have you know, get more technical skills in the you know, laying out books and game design, and doing things that are much uh, bigger in scope. And also, this is also another important part of too, things that are much more based on say doing new new worlds, like your own created campaign setting that you made from scratch, um, because honestly, with DMs Guild. If you're not working with one of our settings, we're really working with like you know mechanical pieces that you know are the full depth of the game, you know things that we haven't put in the SLD. We don't really want someone who has like this great new fantasy world releasing it on the DMs Guild, simply because you know the way we built the Walled Garden, you know there are rights issues that go along with it. Like you're giving up some of your rights, and so we actually early on try to get the word out. You know, don't if you have a really cool campaign setting that's wholly original to what you've done, that's really where you want to look at the open gaming license. If you're looking to use the DD. Because that's just a much better path. You get to own full rights. You get to, to really have ownership over how you want to share it, if you want to share it, you know, beyond the mechanics. Um, and it lets you, you know, create that completely new world. And that's really where we see the open gaming license resting. Or like, you know, you want to take the fifth edition engine and make a superhero game. Mm -hmm. Or do something like really wildly different. You want to do like a modern day fantasy game, something like that, where it's really getting far from what D&D does and the D&D setting. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of how we see that breakdown. I, I, I could probably see people, you know, if you're thinking about getting into a tabletop RPG design, maybe you start with the DMs Guild because you're kind of starting from a foundation where a lot of the stuff's filled in. And as you get experience, then you might move on and try to do like your own game or your own complete setting using uh, the open game devices. Do you think there's a space there in the DMs Guild for uh, experienced designers to sort of be able to, you know? go crazy and, ha you know, can Ed Greenwood, do you see the, a space for Ed Greenwood to come in and just start writing Realms articles like crazy? Uh, yeah, because he, yeah. he doesn't have to go through Watsi to do it now. Exactly. I, I think it's, if, if you're a, if you've done design work, I think it's a great way, what, what my advice to you would be, if, if you're a fan of a setting, and this is your chance to kind of do your own take on the setting, or some material that you've always wanted to write, that's where I'd encourage you to go for it. You know, because I think that th that's definitely part, part of the intent of the, you know, of the DMs guild is to let someone like, you know, if, if Ed wants to do something without our oversight, you know, here's what happened in his personal campaign. Or here's kind of what he always wanted to do with, you know, uh, uh, a deity or a city in the realms. I mean, th that's great. That's totally, you know, that is definitely part of it. You know, just all start selling all of his notes from over the years, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, because we know definitely for someone like Ed, for a lot of creators, you know, if you want to work with Wizards of the Coast, you kind of have to follow our, our, our publishing schedule. Right. You know, I, we're, because we plan so far in advance, because we need tie-ins to you know, uh, other licensed video games we work, you know, our partners doing games like Neverwinter, um, you know, uh, comic book partners, you know, and so on and so forth, people like WizKids. It's, we really don't accept uh, product ideas from the outside world. So typically, if you're writing for Wizards, it's because we said, hey, we're doing a book on... You know, uh, just, I'll make up something fake. Don't take this as a spoiler. <laughs> but like, you know, we're doing a book on uh, the Underdark. So here's what we need. You know, it's, that's much more like that rather than like, hey, what book do you want to write? Pitch a sign. So yeah, if you ever want to work on D and D and that, so you just wanted to say, hey, here's something specific I wanted to write. That's also the deal. Is 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 where you know you can definitely turn to. Okay. Uh, so. One of the, speaking of things that you we've been told for a long time are right around the corner and and took forever to come out like the OGL, um, 
can you speak at all about movement in terms of digital tools, either in-house or licensed? Yeah, that, that's got a very similar approach to it. You know, it's something we know people want, but we also want to make sure that if we're announcing something, we've got something concrete to share. And I think that that's generally been our pattern. You know, when we announce something, it's because within a short window, either a product is releasing or, and this is always ideal for me, especially talking about anything digital, we're announcing it because it's now available. So anything on that, I can definitely tell you, you know, where, where there are things, you know, that we're looking at, you know, people we're talking to about stuff. But uh, where ideally I think we would be is we're announcing something because there is some like you know, usable beta or, or something along those lines. So, and we're also taking our time, you know, like, like I said overall, our approach is we want to take our time and we don't want to put things out there until they're ready. Uh, you know, it's the old thing, you, don't, you only get one chance to make a first impression. Um, and so we want to be play it more conservatively. You know, and in a lot of ways too, it's because I think the, the intersection between technology and tabletop gaming you know, there are certain things we've learned, you know, like some of our partners, you know, like we, you know, uh, um, you know, and, and program stuff that are out there already. But I still think it's an area where there's a lot to be learned. So we, we want to take it slow. We, we don't want to rush something out there and, and let people down or kind of aim at a target audience that doesn't actually exist. So, so talk a little bit, so, so people understand how that process works, myself included. Um, you know, I'm I'm a, a software designer. I've got a great idea for a character builder, and I come to Wizards of the Coast and say, "Hey, I've got this great idea for a character builder." Now, what is the process that that happens that sure. that you know goes from that to now? There's a published product that's been announced. Um, you know, and and why does it sometimes take you know a long time to get that done? So the first step is is hammering hammering out a, a license. So let's imagine if you came to us, you had a good idea and you had a good pitch, we thought, you know, the features are promising or your journal approach makes sense, then we have to look at, you know, creating a contract. So typical license, you know, there's, there's royalties, there's uh, minimum payments we might expect from you. So we might say, hey, your royalties are going to be X percent, and each year we expect you to pay Y dollars, you know, things like that, all the business side of things. And a lot of times what's that there is, what's that, what a big part of that is, is not only, you know, we want to make sure that, you know, you're, you have a viable business and that, you know, it makes sense for us to work with you. Um, but it's also there to make sure that, you know, a company's really serious. You know, like, it's because when we work with a licensed partner, we work with them very closely. You know, we provide a lot of support, whether it's someone crafting a story for a game or whether it's just the technical support of, hey, how do these rules work, right? Because when you're writing software, you don't want to have to guess at what the rules are doing, right? So there's going to be a level of, uh, of, of fidelity to the core rules that you're going to expect. So someone like a Jeremy Crawford, or Chris Lindsay or myself, we'll, you know, we're on conference calls with you know potential partner, you know, partners of partners working on something. We're giving them a lot of guidance, so it's commitment on both ends. And then typically, what happens from there is, you know, it's just the, there's a very iterative process when you're building software like this, because there's a lot, I think there's a lot of questions where people will, you might look at it and think, hey, how hard is it to build a character sheet for you know uh, for a character manager? But then when you start asking questions, well, are people using tablets? Are they using phones? Are they using a PC? Uh, are they using all three? Uh, how does how do you go from using a PC to using a phone? What do you expect? You know the interface is a change. Is it the same? Do people have to relearn? And so there's a lot of things where it might seem pretty simple. Like you know, like if you're just thinking, hey, I just want something for my PC. But then when you look at well, what are most D&D players using when they're at the table? And then you think, well, yeah, a lot of people you know, they all have a smartphone or they might have a tablet. And like, can I sell to just one person in the group? Does everyone at the table have a laptop? 
what are the dungeon master? Like, what tools are they using? How do they interact with each other? And so there's a lot of questions there. Like, on the surface, it might seem pretty simple. But when you're trying to build something that is going to be really interesting and get a lot of people to move over and, and use a tool, there's a lot of questions like that that are actually very thorny and are, are not easy to solve. And so I think a lot of times when you think, oh, why might something be taking a long time? A lot of it is like in those why questions, testing. Um, this goes back to this idea, you know, we don't want to launch something that isn't, you know, isn't up to quality. Uh, you know, the game D&D is a pretty complex game, especially when you're trying to transform it into something that a computer can adjudicate. Um, so there's a lot of just weird questions and interactions that need to be cleared up. There are definitely things like, you know, when we worked on the character builder for 4th edition, for instance, there would be essentially rules the character builder was following that you wouldn't see in the book because while like you or I reading the book could understand what the rule meant, when you're adjudicating it digitally, there's well it has to take into account every other possible interaction it might make between a feat, a different power, a different character race. So there would be a lot of development taking place kind of invisibly to make sure that when you're building your fourth edition character that it was a seamless experience and everything is working the way you expected. So it, it's a bigger job than I think people might think, and it's a very time-consuming one because you're really just dealing with all these exceptions, all these interactions, and all these pieces. And to be honest, and to be you know to 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 kind of have you know empathy or sympathy for anyone trying to take on take on this a project like this, we designed Fifth Edition first and foremost to work quickly at the table. You know, we put some thought into digital tools, but our main focus was saying, look, let's get it right for printed book, you know, that someone's using at the table, and there that does mean there might be some interactions that need some real work to get them to work for like a, a program, but we're willing to make that that sacrifice to really streamline and make sure the game is as effective as a, a, a written text. So th that level of involvement and worrying about the market and all of that, is that primarily when you're thinking about in-house things? Or if, do you worry, do you get that level of, does Watsi, I should say, get that level of involved on licensed products too? Or as long as the royalties and payments are coming in, you let them handle it? No, it's definitely it's a concern for in both cases. <coughs> you know, when you're looking at someone who's pitching, a, when they say, hey, we want to license D&D for me, regardless of what they're doing, whether it's a character builder, an MMO, or, you know, a, a you know, bath soap, right? You want to make sure that we are working as the caretakers of D and D. You know, we don't want to just have things. That it's just the D and D label slapped on something that has mm -hmm. nothing. To do with it. We want to make sure these these are whatever the product is. It's relevant to D and D fans that they understand it and they're interested in it. You know, the um, because you know you really have to think of yourself as you know, like I said, you, we're really other caretakers. And so part of that step is just thinking, hey, does this make sense for Dungeons and Dragons? And then, and then you also want to make sure, hey, it's going to be a quality product. Uh, you know, it's not something that has, you know, it has a chance to, you know, come across as you know, low quality or it's not going to be doing what we want. So yeah, we're very protective of D and D, and we want to make sure we're working with people who are going to maintain a high, uh, high level of quality, and are going to do products that make people feel like, hey, I like D and D even more now because of what someone's doing. You know, want to be interesting and fun and, and relevant. Cool. And along the lines, um, you talked a little bit about process and design and stuff. Uh, one of the things it seems is that Curse of Strahd uh, mm -hmm. was done in-house with freelancers rather than working with a studio. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and this is a bit of a different approach so far for this edition. And so why the change and should we expect more of this? Yeah, that's definitely um, from the next few products we're working on. That's the approach we're taking. Um, and it's a combination of two things. Um, to start with, uh, the studios we work with were, were great partners. And what they let us do was, while we were working on the core rules you know, to launch uh, fifth, they let us really focus on those core rules while they were off uh, building their own products. So, I mean, that's especially, you know, if you obviously look at like uh, uh, Cobalt Press working on Horde uh, of Dragon Bean and uh, Rods of Tiamat, you know, where, where they are working at the same time, like, you know, they're working before the book, the rules are even published. But even, you know, when working with Green Ronin, you know, to get that product uh, kicked off, uh, both um, Out of the Abyss and uh, Sword Coast Adventures Guide, you know, those books had to be worked on uh, a year before they came out. So even those were needed work done while we were still launching the three core books. So they were uh, great to work with because it meant we essentially could bring on an additional design team and work with them at the same time we were doing the work on the core books. The, um, now, now we have more time between us and the launch of the game, we have more bandwidth for our internal designers, whether it's managing freelancers or doing direct work themselves, uh, to take on some of those tasks. Um, so yeah, now I wouldn't say that means we would never work with an outside studio. It's just for now, where we are, it makes sense for us to really to manage these in-house. The, and I think that's kind of, you know, when we talk about things like uh, the release schedule and how we're managing things, you know, we try as much as possible to really driven by the reality, you know, of, of, of the market, what people are using, what fans want. So. It's rare, I think, we ever commit to a plan and think, hey, this is our plan forever. My thinking is always, this is our plan for the current situation. And if the situation changes, then the way we do things would change. So I think like working with Sue is a good example of it, where it really just made sense to work with some high-quality partners to get those first few products out there. Uh, and then as more, as more bandwidth opened up, then we could start taking more of that in-house. So, so I think we're always going to be flexible, just in terms of what makes the most sense, for delivering the stuff, whatever that might be, to D and DMs and players. So, what are the advantages of bringing it in the house rather than using the studio? Uh, the main thing is really uh, is coordination, uh, because, for instance, like take uh, Chris Perkins, he helped create the story bible for uh, for the for the uh, Curse of Strahd storyline. You know, working with uh, uh, with Tracy Hickman, and then you know with our internal team of writers. Uh, you know, being able to say, okay, Chris, you worked on the story about it, but helped create it, go ahead and now just write the adventure. You know, so you have, uh, you know, with any project, the more times you have to trade, you know, take tasks from person to person, the more likely you have errors can creep in, miscommunication, and it's just the nature of the beast, whether it's working on a D&D book, uh, or, you know, writing software, or working in a restaurant, right? Communication always has this chance to, to introduce uh, uh, error, you know, chaos, all this other stuff. So by kind of focusing on a smaller team, it lets us be a bit more agile, and we can go more from uh, this is what got created, here's the adventure. There's just fewer hoops we have to have to jump through. It's really just a matter of, 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 of efficiency for us. So that's the biggest saving on it. Now, I'd say that one of the drawbacks of it is you work with a studio; they're really bringing in you know different different perspectives on things. Hmm. So that's something I think we always have to look out for: is we don't fall into repetitive you know, the same patterns. We're not just doing the same thing because that's what we did, how we did it last time. So, like, like, like everything, it's a trade-off. But I think, especially if, you know, for the next few products, the um, having it approached in-house gives us uh, gives us the efficiency and gives us some of the agility that we 
in, in developing. Now, t- historically, I guess the there has been an observed cycle in terms of staffing as far, when we talk about the in-house Watsy D&D people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that it tends to, to fluctuate and it grows at one point and then starts to shrink and more studios or freelancers get used and whatever. So since more of it's coming in-house, does that herald uh, a possible uh, growth of of employees, I guess, designers? Because there's not a whole ton of you uh, at there at, anymore that I know of. Yeah, so we have about, um, the team is at, a, at about 25 people right now. Um, there are a lot of people behind the scenes that people just don't see because I think mm-hmm. most most people interact with D and D. You know, they they they're, they're, they're tabletop RPG fans. Are you including brand in that in the team though, or just designers? Yeah. Oh no, that, that that's the entire thing. Right. So for most people, they might see like five or six people who's like you know, oh, this is the people actually doing the writing. Um, and so I, I think that that team will. You know, I'm not anticipating us like really growing uh, beyond where we are now. Something because I think when we reorganize the team. We thought about what do we actually need. You know, we really wanted that that continuity and that stability really being things that that we focused on. Because it's great, you know, when you're working on a product that you can have that sense of, hey, I know I've done this before. I know how to do it again. And then this is where things like consultants, like, you know, bringing in Tracy Hickman. We've worked with other people from uh, outside the company, you know, where it's really good to bring in someone with a very distinct and different point of view, work with them, and not feel like, well, the only way we can work with them is if we hire them. Because you know, it might not make sense because, you know, this person's skills and perspective are really great for this specific product. So we can work with them more on a contract or consultant or freelance basis uh, and kind of see ourselves as like, you know, the nerve center of everything. And, you know, it also lets us change things up year over year, you know, approach different stories, have different, you know, different genres, you know, within fantasy and things like that because we can kind of more just draft an all-star team to work on that and rather than ask people to kind of maybe go outside of what their range of design is. You know, in a lot of ways, uh, the you can think of it as, you know, I'm trying to think of a good, good analogy. We work with a lot of uh, licensees, you know, who do like video games and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. We almost can kind of think of like, let's say, I'll just, I'll make up a crazy example. If we want to do like an over-the-top humor campaign, right? We just decided... We want to do is do silly, wacky D and D. You know, I'm not asking you know someone like my, myself or like Jeremy Cropper, like, hey, try to write funny. We can just go, hey, who are the funniest people in the world who are also D and D fans? Let's bring them in for a month and help them help and work with them to create this. I want to see you the know? Stephen Colbert campaign. <laughs> exactly. <right. laughs> so yeah, so I think that's really where our thinking is that you know we can't we can't like load up the staff for every possibility. But we know we can have people like, and like Adam Lee is a writer who works on D&D. He worked over on Magic. You know, he's a really skilled writer, and he's got a lot of big ideas. And you know, he's someone that I can rely on not only to do his own writing, but also to work with other writers. You know, I think that's more of a, a, a skill set that the creators working, you know, at Wizards of the Coast in staff positions, that's a little bit more of something that we'd expect out of them. That you know, it's not just you; it's also this idea of being really good at collaborating and being able to collaborate with. You know, and if you and if you say that you're not looking to grow the team and you're sort of the top guy in design, then you're then you're apparently not making requests for more people, right? So that's <laughs> that's probably a pretty good sign that at least for the the time being, you don't want to grow the team. Yeah. So. No, I, I think that's it's kind of going back to the idea. Yeah, that, that's just I think where we are now, we're just really you know, there's all sorts of different things you can optimize for, like you know, where do you want to focus? And yeah, so right now, focus on stability, continuity, and that that flexibility. 
So speaking of, of growing and maybe not the team, uh, how can how do you feel uh, the growth of the game is going in general? Besides just bringing in um, players from other games, uh, the, but the growth of the game in general, uh, growth of the gaming industry, I guess. Are we bringing in more people to, to playing role-playing games? And is D&D part of that? Yeah, no, I think we definitely, based on what we're seeing in terms of you know, people buying players' handbooks and, and uh, D&D's effect on pop culture, you know, how often it gets mentioned online, all this other stuff, seeing people talk about it, uh, we are, by every measure, seeing really strong growth in D&D. Uh, I think the, the big thing that 5th edition has done is, to start with, I think we, we, we were able to, to hit the goal of making it, you know, hey, this just, regardless of which edition you play, this feels like D&D. And so I think we've, we've been able to really reach out to people who used to play D&D or are currently playing RPGs and, 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 and make them feel like, hey, 5th edition is a game I can play and run and I enjoy. But the other half of it, too, was really trying to make the game more accessible. You know, it kind of goes, like, I mean, I'll bring up the fighter example, but trying to use words and concepts and rules that make it as easy as possible for someone to get into playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I think so when you look at things like, you know, not, not only just the rules themselves, but the rise of people uh, streaming their D&D sessions, uh, you know, DMs like Matt Mercer, you know, in Critical Role, where d is becoming this form of entertainment, you know, where we're watching people play D&D well is fun. You know, like, the Acquisitions Inc. games at PAX in PAX East. The, we're uh, listening to great podcasts about it. Yeah, no, exactly. Right? <laughs> no, because when, when you think about it, in, uh, when I uh, grew up in the 80s, you know, the only D&E fans I knew of were three other people in my middle school, you know, in the, in the mid-80s. And now, and, and that was it, right? And I had to rely on learning the game by reading. You know, uh, I think the genius of the Red Box in the early 80s or mid-80s was you know use that choose your own adventure you know style uh, approach to teach you how to play D anD D. Well, that made a lot of sense because like you know my technology such as it was at the time was well I understood choose your choose your own adventure books. I read those. Lots of kids read those. And now I think with the you know with broadband internet streaming video you know video becoming almost kind of like the the, the 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 media of choice for people online now. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it's really fitting in well with this idea that if I want to learn how to play D&D, I don't need to find someone who already knows how to play. I can just go to YouTube or I can just go to Twitch you know, uh, and, and watch people play and learn the game that way. And so I think that's really benefiting in us. And I think having a game where when you watch people play, the language they're using, it's not really filled with a ton of incomprehensible jargon. You know, it, it's words and concepts that make sense to you if like you know, you've seen Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or, or whatnot or read Harry Potter. Like it just it kinda makes sense. You know, you don't have to dig through a lot of technical terms to appreciate the game, you know, trying to streamline the rules. So I think it's been a, it just it's kinda like, you know, good timing in our part, combined you know, with, with internet and sharing and and people playing, you know, almost like playing games as like this performance. Uh, and being able to ride that and then, you know, having, you know, a game system that lends itself to that. Uh, it's been very fortunate for us. You know, and I know when we do, uh, you know, part of our surveys, we ask people, you know, how do you, what do you think of the game? Are you happy with it? You know, we've asked people their age, and we have definitely seen a uh, drop in the uh, the average age of, of players. You know, from before the play test to after the release of the game. Hmm. You know, and and we're seeing we are we are well ahead of our goals for for sales of like players' handbooks and our, and our other products. So I, I really think I think. Role-playing games in general are enjoying a bit of a comeback. Uh, 
And I think that's that's just overall good for us. And obviously, I mean, <laughs> I can't think of like, oh, we're all role playing games. We're enjoying, you know, this kind of this this nice renaissance, but it's not good. For right. the, I'm, uh, I'm going to take credit for that. I started a, an after school gaming club in my middle the middle school where I teach, <laughs> and I expected like five or six kids to sign up, and I ended up with yeah. like twenty. And I and over Christmas break, like five of them came back with players' handbooks. Awesome. So, no, yeah. Was, no. <laughs> yeah. First, thank you. <laughs> yeah. But I think we're definitely seeing that. And I think we're also D&D has reached an age where, you know, parents are playing it with their kids. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's the kind of thing where I think a lot of uh, media, where it's movies, games, uh, books, you know, I think when you're a parent, you want to share stuff you like with your kids. And I think we've kind of grown culturally to the point where, you know, it's it's not it's not inappropriate to do that, right? Where... The stuff I liked, you know, there's a difference between, for instance, uh, watching Mr. Rogers with my daughter, right? Where it's like, you know, I can watch it, but it's a kid's show. And I'm watching, you know, it's not something I would necessarily watch on my own. But if you think of something like playing a game with her, when she gets a bit older, like playing uh, uh, The Legend of Zelda or something like that, that's something I could still do for fun now. You know, it's not, I think the generation gap really is essentially vanished when it comes to most forms of entertainment, you know. And I think D&D is also good because, you know, you think of, like, uh, uh, movies, you know, it's obviously, you know, Deadpool is rated R and it did really well, but it's not really a movie you'd want to bring your kids to. You know, D&D is the kind of thing where if I'm playing it with my kids, I can really regulate, like, what the content of the game is and how many of the rules I'm going to ask them to learn. You know, so it's also, like, I think it really lends itself well to, to, you know, as a family activity. Great. And um, talking about all those fans, both old and new, uh... Do you have any insight into what's around the corner for D&D for them, what, like what they should expect? <laughs> and, so, don't, and don't just pimp Curse of Strahd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Curse of Strahd, it is the current product, so uh-huh. I highly recommend it for looking for a Gothic Horror campaign. But uh, So I can't give any specifics on products we're doing, but I can say that our emphasis is really, uh, we really wanted to, to give people fun stories that they can share around the table, you know, uh, that's something which is, is really going to continue to be our emphasis. Because I think a great story, and, and, and in D&D's case, we're not giving you like, here's a story it's been told. It's more like, here's the potential for a story. But I think, again, that's kind of thing that cuts across whether you are currently playing D&D or thinking about it. You know, I, I think we're at our strongest, and I think this is where a lot of our current success is coming from, is we're talking to potential fans with words and terms that they can recognize and that can get them excited. Like, you know, hey, in, in, in D&D, the current thing is you get to, you know, when you think of Curse of Strahd, you get, you're, you're going to be whisked away to this, you know, this, this, this realm of gothic horror and werewolves and vampires, and it's up to you to take on and defeat the most powerful vampire in D&D. You know, like, oh, that's, you know, you know, I don't play D&D, that just sounds interesting. So I think you're going to see us continue to really focus on that. And even when we do say something like a real mecha- a big mechanical expansion, um, we want to do it in a way that it kind of tells a story. You know, it's it's us being more cognizant of the fact that D&D is a culture and we are at the center of that culture. So, you know, the, the whys behind why we're doing things are things that feel to the community logical, sensible, and interesting to the point where, you know, they want you, you want to follow along as a DM or player. You want to see what's happening next and you really feel like you're part of it. And I think that was one of the big big lessons we learned from the playtest was it wasn't just, oh, this is a playtest to make sure this game is, is you know, good and it doesn't have, you know, it's not buggy and filled with errors, but it's something that brings us all together. You know, like this is a, it's a shared event. It's like a milestone in the history of D&D. And people want to feel like, oh, I was there. I was part of that. 
And so that's definitely going to be something we would continue to focus on, that, that sense of community and that sense of bringing people together and really thinking of ourselves as the caretakers of D&D and try to build a, a fun, engaging narrative, whether you've been playing D&D for 40 years or whether you are just kind of curious about playing the game. Right on. Uh, so I th- what I heard was next we'll be seeing another storyline and it'll totally be Spelljammer. That's what I heard. <laughs> hey, never say never. Hey, for, for the record, like several yeah. months ago, I predicted the next storyline would be Strahd and, or Ravenloft, and I was right. Yeah. I nailed it. Nope. I have so it I on recording. <laughs> so. we, we, we do have someone, John File, the head of our, our licensing team, uh, is running a Spelljammer campaign uh, here at Wizards. It's a, a lunchtime game. Right on. So. So we got we have Spelljammer fans in, 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 in within the company. So. Yeah, <laughs> right on. Very good. Well, thanks again for joining us. Uh, it's it's always good to sort of check in and see where things are, and uh, especially since we won't be seeing you at Gen Con this year, right? So, uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we will be to Origins though. If you yep. make it to Origins Columbus yep. in early June, we're gonna have yep. a great time. Well, the the first time I met you was Origins. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, right, and and that was just sort of a. And then I decided, well, there's not a lot of D and D going on here. I'll go to Gen Con, and now you moved on me. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so, very good. Well, we'll we'll maybe try to touch base again about a year from now, and just uh, see if we can let let the powers that be make this a regular th- check in and see how things have gone in the, in every year. Sounds great. All right. Cool. All right. Take it easy. Yep. Thanks, thanks for having me. And that's the end of the episode. We would like to say thank you to our sponsor, Noble Knight, as well as to Mike Morales for coming on, and to all of you for supporting the show by shopping from our affiliate links when you use Amazon or D&D Classics. Yeah, and we didn't even tell ask Mike to, to share how people can get a hold of him. Uh, he is Mike Merles on Twitter, right? I believe so, yeah. I think so. So at Mike Merles on Twitter. Um, he's also on Facebook, but I think his Facebook page mostly just copies whatever he, he tweeted. So <laughs> Twitter seems to be the best way to get a hold of him if you have questions about D&D or what have you. And he's pretty responsive. So, And if you want to get a hold of us, you could reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at Squatch, and she's at uh, Sarah Dark Magic, Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Uh, or you can email us at thetomeshow at gmail.com, thetomeshow at gmail.com, or call the biz line at 919-BIZ-TOME. That's B-I-Z-T-O-M-E. And that's episode 262, where we took a look around and found that perhaps the state of the game is strong after all in this episode of... The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome, The Tome. I'm not a